This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. I'm John Dunn. It's Friday, May 15th. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Our email for the program is podcast at bestfriends.org. We love getting your messages, and right now we have an important question. We're all starting to have some return to normalcy, whatever the hell that means, but things are starting to open back up. How are things where you live? If you're with a municipal or private shelter, rescue organization, with a facility, what are the policies and procedures you're putting in place to help keep people and pets safe? Now, if you're a volunteer, really interested to know your experience right now, are you worried? Will you put in the same hours you did before? Are you taking any personal precautions? Let me know. Podcast at bestfriends.org. Today, we want to talk about essential and non-essential services. It's a question that many in industry has found itself grappling with over the last few weeks. And if I asked you six months ago, tell me which of the things we do in animal welfare are non-essential. I can't imagine the list would be very long, and I guarantee that you wouldn't say spay and neuter, but I suppose it depends on who you ask. Our mayor would not allow our city's shelter to operate at all. He would not let them put animals out and foster. He would not let them do a push for adoption. I provided him guidance from all of the other organizations, and he didn't care. They were staying closed. That's Denise Deisler. She's the president and CEO of the Jacksonville Humane Society. Right out of the gate, we knew we would be the only game in town. And in pretty quick succession, the four surrounding counties closed their facilities as well, which made us even more committed to be able to find a way to safely carry out mission because there wasn't anybody for five counties that was able to. So that fueled us. Jacksonville Humane is experienced at this. Okay, well, maybe not this exact thing, but it is hurricane territory after all, so they know how to react in times of crisis. We were determined that it didn't have to be an either-or situation, that if we thought about it and used the bright minds that get us through millions of other challenges here, that we could find a way that would be responsible and safe for our community, our staff, um, to continue mission. So Denise told me that for them, continuing mission meant continuing surgeries. I met with our medical team, and they were absolutely convinced that we could continue all medical operations in a safe manner. So we never stopped any of our programming. We just had to modify it. With half a team, I could do half as much surgery. Now let's look at Michigan. My name is Chris Jordan. I'm the executive director of the PAWS Clinic. Um, We have been open going on nine years now, um, focused solely on spay-neuter. The PAWS Clinic was expecting to do 9,500 surgeries this year, about a fifth of those community cats. We have been closed since March 23rd. Our last surgery was March 19th, which is a long time to be closed. Michigan was one of the earliest and hardest states to be hit with the virus. And in case you're not following along, the governor's order was swift and strict. In addition to the stay at home, the executive order said no elective surgeries, um, which spay-neuter is, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I suppose there's some debate on whether it's life-saving or not, but, you know, in the true sense of the word, no, it, it, it's elective. So so we had no choice to shut down. And we just closed abruptly on March 23rd. At that time, and, and I think probably like everybody else, we didn't think this was going to go on this long. We, um, we thought we'd go for a couple of weeks and then we'd start getting back in business. So watching this whole 
thing kind of crumble. The total shutdown for the PAWS clinic just makes everything complicated now. They voluntarily handed over the personal protective equipment they had to the local human healthcare system. Now they have to acquire new supplies, and that's just one challenge. We've got so many appointments to reschedule. You know, and we haven't even been able to start that in this downtime because we don't know when we can reopen. Again, I don't know if you're watching the news, but the governor's order in Michigan was strict in a lot of ways. Recent protests at the state capitol have highlighted the frustration some Michiganders feel, and things are getting dicey. We had a shooting here in Flint, as I'm sure you know, because somebody suggested to somebody that they need to wear a mask. And honestly, that probably terrifies me more than the spread of COVID. I think we can protect ourselves that way, but dealing with it seems to be a, an increasingly irrational public worries me a great deal. Chris says they're going to start back doing surgeries for their shelter and rescue partners at the end of the month as the restrictions loosen. But the public, they're going to have to wait. I'm really kind of figuring in my mind that we won't start get back, getting back to a normal pattern until sometime well into fall. Now let's go to Texas. There's not a single veterinarian in Texas that closed besides us. That's Bonnie Hill. She's the executive director and founder of Spay Neuter Network. We really felt like when the governor came down and he said not that non-essential services are to be closed down. And um, our vets were like, okay, then this is time to close. I mean, the minute he says that, that he says, you know, if it's not essential, don't do it. This is a big organization, three brick and mortar clinics, a mobile clinic, a transportation network to bring animals in from 35 different counties, all told 32,000 surgeries a year. The six-week closure allowed the spay-neuter network management to rewrite policies and procedures to ensure that things were safer when they opened back up. Everything now that we do is completely paperless. Um, people are not allowed to bring a piece of paper into the building. We also have um, set up Google Text so that when people arrive at the clinic, they have to text. We only allow two people in the clinic at a time. Now, unfortunately, the client experience has taken a hit. Really, the only thing that this has done to us is slow our, our intake down. So the check-in process is taking us about two hours now versus 30 minutes before. So after this closure, the numbers by and large are back where they were. We have not changed a lot of our value because part of the problem is, is that we were closed for six months or six weeks, which means we had absolutely no income. Any grant funding that we received was completely gone. Um, our monthly expenses without doing surgeries and without full staff is close to $200,000 a month. For Spay Neuter Network, their decision to close was less about essential or not and more about taking the time to reset and find the best ways to work safely and understand just how to make it work going forward. The new world is going to be a lot more expensive to function in if it has to continue to happen this way. I asked Bonnie if she had advice for anyone struggling with these decisions. If your state is saying that you're not essential, then you're not essential. Don't do it. We really felt like since the areas that we service are such low income and are already high intake areas for the shelter here, specifically in Dallas and Fort Worth, that we wanted to make sure that we were able to get people in who really needed to come in. I kept telling myself, we're essential, we're essential, we should be open. And then I thought, oh my gosh, there's people who are dying, right? So really just think about it and make sure that the decision that you're making is the best thing for everyone, not just for your business. Okay, so back to this core question. What of our work is essential? 
This isn't without controversy. And while I'm not trying to instigate a fight or put blame anywhere, I think there's merit in bringing it up because we have to learn from this stuff. So as the decisions were being wrestled with across the country, some of the leading national organizations, including Best Friends, put out guidelines intended to offer guidance, but unintentionally made things tough. Denise brought this up to me and I wanted to share. It bothered me to no end that we were shouting from the rooftops that our core, most important work was being labeled non-essential. <laughs> that bothered me. There, I thought there were all kinds of ways we could characterize that. But so many of us have worked for decades to have a seat at the table and to have people value and place animal welfare high on that list of values, those lives matter, and to summarily declare everything most everything we were doing, non-essential, it frightened me. And you might think kind of like I did, eh, Denise, you're taking this too personally. You're overreacting. This is a crazy time, right? And it'll all be fine. But she brings up a very good point. It frightened me when I saw the um, traffic all over Facebook of people laying off half their staff, knowing full well what government budgets look like. They're going to have a hard time getting that staff back. They are. And they're going to have a hard time getting their budgets back to the level that they need them. Of course, as Denise says, you shouldn't maintain services at all costs either. It's about the language and making the best decisions you can. I would never do anything that was irresponsible. I'm a human being. My health and my family matter to me. Our staff's health and their families matter to me. I lay to sleep every single night and said, am I doing the right thing? Um, because I would have been devastated if my decision-making had harmed this staff or this community in any kind of way, and I mean devastated. And now to a conversation with Amy St. Arnaud. She's the Director of Veterinary Outreach for Best Friends. She's been working on all kinds of amazing initiatives, and COVID-19 hasn't changed that one bit. Now, just a heads up, listening to this, I think you'll learn a lot, and is a huge payoff. You'll get to hear me sing. You know, this has been, I think, for every element of what we do, this kind of big moment, this big change, but particularly for spay neuter, particularly for veterinary services, surgeries, it was maybe the biggest change of all. Can you maybe give a timeline of, you know, as, as we started to see COVID being a thing, kind of what happened in your world? Yeah, well, I think like everybody else, it was it just hit so fast and you were just scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. And I think particularly within spay-neuter, one of the biggest things that happened is it got labeled non-essential. And I think that was very hard for a lot of people, myself included, because I consider myself a spay-neuter girl. And that's that's what I do. You know, we, we talk about getting your animals fixed. That's what we've been, you know, putting the message out there everywhere as loud as we can for years. And then all of a sudden for it to be considered non-essential and to talk about putting out on altered animals was really, really hard for a lot of people. Can you explain more about that when you say uh, putting them out? This was, uh, I believe, NACA, uh, maybe other organizations. There was actually a guideline to say that putting out unaltered pets was okay, right? Yeah. So, you know, in a pandemic, you obviously have to really look at different things, try different things that you think you normally wanted to try to do what's best. And so that was a recommendation that came out. And the hardest part for me, I think, was that being labeled non-essential, I think, was the wrong word because I think spay-neuter absolutely is essential. 
And I think it was really more about trying to protect the staff doing the surgeries, the client and the general public. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of services got labeled non-essential. And if you were labeled a non-essential worker, that didn't exactly make you feel <laughs> that great. But I think that really we should have come up with a different name because spay neuter absolutely is essential. And I think we all realize that and said that even if the decision was made to temporarily halt it, doesn't mean it wasn't essential. It just means we were trying to protect everyone. I know every state was different, but was this by and large what happened in most of the country that this non-essential, so TNR was essentially halted? A lot of places that's what happened. There were some places that stayed open that felt that they could do it safely and were able to stay open on, on more of a limited number. And a lot of places shut down completely. So some places have been shut down for six weeks even. Um, and some some places are probably going to be shut down longer. So that for me, when when that happened, I thought, okay, this is going to be really hard. I knew a lot of people were very upset. So my mind automatically goes to what can we do? And what what are the things that we can do while we're shut down? So we really tried to focus on now's the time for everybody, show everybody how to trap, get them engaged in uh, watching videos online, get your staff trained, really focus on promoting spay neuter. So we really tried to give people things they could do while they were closed. And now we're working on some really cool stuff that when they reopen or as they're reopening to try to help them to be able to do this with the new physical distance guidelines. And what are those guidelines for reopening? You said that we'd been working on some with other organizations. Yeah. So we're actually, um, because, you know, one of the biggest concerns is this happened right during kitten season. And so people were just so stressed, particularly if you do trap, neuter, return, or you're really worried about what impact this is going to have. So some of the things that we've been working on is number one, I, I helped convene a, a committee and it had myself and, and Cornell University, UC Davis, um, Clinic HQ, which is a, a software for spay neuter clinics. Uh, we had a pet community center, which is a clinic in Tennessee. We had the ASV, the Association of Shelter Vets was involved. And we actually put together a committee where we really helped try to put together some guidelines for as people navigate this new normal, because we do think this is going to last a while. We don't think that this is going to be something that we're just going to be able to go right back into normal. And, you know, with spay neuter, we're doing high volume. So you sometimes are having 60 people come in your lobby or you're having, you know, you're doing a hundred animals a day. You're having vaccine clinics with lots of people. So we're really having to think about what that is going to uh, look like in this new normal. So we helped develop some guidelines based on all of our experience and talking with other clinics and what other people are doing. And it's on our website, bestfriends.org. And it's a live document. And what's really nice about it is that it's going to be continued to be updated. And we're getting pictures and videos and sample forms for people to help them think about what is this going to look like. And so it has things on it like how you can put your do curbside check-in and check-out and use a lot more technology. It has things like how you can, uh, within your clinic in small spaces, make sure your staff are appropriately um, physically distant. So it has some really good stuff in there that that we're hoping is going to help clinics. Is is there is PPE still a concern? I believe at one point I heard that the lack of masks and some of the other things that were a, a need for you know human medicine 
with everybody dealing with COVID, particularly in places like New York, had impacted veterinary services that still needed to use that gear. Is that still a problem? Yes. it's it, What we're finding right now is it's not PPE as much, but it is other inventory. So it is, well, it is very difficult to still find gloves. Gloves, surgical gloves seem to be a big one for a lot of people. Um, and some clinics just can't open because they can't find enough. Some clinics had a supply, so they're able to go, but there is a concern of how long might this be. And then there's a lot of stuff there. There are some anesthetic drugs that are harder to find. Um, there's just some inventory backlogs in general. Some of it isn't necessarily drugs are used on the human side. It's just backlog of things. And then some of it is like surgical gloves, just really trying. There's just a huge backlog. So that's something that's definitely uh, impacting groups ability to come back and do surgeries. And so everybody needs to really take that into consideration as well. There's so much to talk about here. I mean, I feel like this is going to end up being a very non-contiguous interview and I'm really sorry because I just <laughs> think, me. oh, that's on my brain. Now you see inside my brain. Well, unfortunately people are starting to see inside my brain. So I don't know having me host this was a good idea, but uh, it, there are so many things. You mentioned the kitten season and TNR. I, I was thinking about those organizations uh, as we were talking about this episode and the local organizations that I've worked with that we adopted a cab from that um, is primarily a TNR organization and their schedule is like every Friday, you know, there's like 50 and they work with local veterinarians who are, have offered their services low cost. So that system that has been just running like clockwork isn't right. It's stopped. So now what, right? So we're maybe able to ramp back up, but what about the private vet? Are they behind? Do they have the resources to be able to offer low cost or no cost surgeries like they were before. Uh, I mean, I, I could just rattle off like 12 questions, <laughs> but how do we start? I mean, are we able just to pick up where we were before? No, that's been part of the problem. A lot of spay neuter clinics were already booked out even before this, like they might've already been booked out a month or two. Now we're hearing some of the clinics are booked out till September, just trying to get in. So trying to figure out how we're going to help deal with the, the, people that already had to be rescheduled that had appointments, the demand before plus now, and now we're adding in, there could potentially be a 30% unemployment rate. So now people are really going to need help even more than ever with the cost of veterinary care. And I'll tell you, my clinics are full service clinics. So we stayed open to deal with sick and injured. We're booked out a month at ours, just doing that. And we got, um, we were not doing spay neuter during this time either, but now we're backed up because people are coming to us because the, the other options aren't available. So it's really created this entire, everybody now is backed up in the veterinary world. So how are we going to deal with that? That's going to be a really big piece of it. And so we've been really trying to think about, you know, uh, clinics are getting very creative. Some of them are being open seven days a week and they're doing it with smaller staff so that they can apply to the physical distancing, but still get their numbers in. Some are doing shifts. So some were one of the, th we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we're working on some things that might bring some surgical teams in to uh, people. So uh, there's all sorts of things that are being looked at. Or, and I look at this as a way, and we've talked about this a lot in the sh on the sheltering side, but I think within spay neuter too, this is a time when we're really going to be creative and look at some new things. And it might involve how we do things being done completely different. Because, you know, there weren't, years ago, there was no such thing as high volume spay neuter. If you had said to somebody that, oh, you can go spay and neuter, you know, 35 animals in a day safely and do it well and efficiently, people would have thought you were crazy. And now there's this high volume spay neuter where that's possible. And, and it happened because 
people were willing to try something outside of the norm that you thought you couldn't do and see if you could do it. And I think that this is what this pandemic is making us do. I mean, it might be driving us a little insane and we might be binge eating, but it's also going to really come with some really creative things that might drive us into the new future. How did you know I was binge eating? That was talking about myself, chocolate. <laughs> chocolate is my uh, food of choice. I've been very careful about not putting photos of myself uh, online during this time. So, um, so you talked about innovation. I mean, that's across everything, right? This innovation, how are we dealing with, with people and pets and behavior and public safety and all of these things? Can you, is there an example maybe of something that you've seen that, oh, okay, this is something that we're going to now do and it forced us and we're going to keep doing it because it is a good idea? Well, one of the things that that's made me give me hope through this is that spay neuter had really been at the forefront years ago and everybody really realized how important it was. And you, and you saw a rise in clinics, you saw a rise in funding. And now I think we we almost been our own worst enemy because we'd done so well with it and we had gotten so many surgeries done and we were starting to see such impact with that that some of the the funders moved on to different uh, categories and there isn't as much spay neuter funding out there anymore and there isn't as much spay neuter support out there and so I think we really have realized through this seeing the importance of spay neuter when you don't have it that we may really need to rethink that and get back to providing some additional spay neuter funding which I'm excited about. And I hope that we'll be able to really look at as a field. And I think the other thing is really, this might be a great time for us to bring some more technology into spay neuter. It's, we've always kind of done it. There's been some technology, but there's still a lot of paper involved. There's still a lot of process of waiting in line and um, long lines of people to be able to do it efficiently with the way the system is set up. I think this is going to give us an opportunity because we've been seeing a lot of these really cool technology things of how you can do like wait while with some of these apps and how you can do uh, texting and how you can be more paperless and how we can do more contactless and you don't have to have these these long lines and people are doing these drive through vaccine clinics. And so I think we're going to see technology play a big role in making us even more efficient. And then hopefully if we're able to really think about bringing back some spay neuter funding, because again, that's going to be so needed. And I think we're really going to need to brainstorm how are we going to help people who now more than ever are going to need help with financially and knowing that as people are home, they're seeing more stray cats outside their ears. They're more aware of it. We're going to need to help them be able to help the strays or the community cats. What are we going to do? That's going to be the, the interesting piece for this. So uh, hopefully I can come on back on your podcast in a year and we'll be able to talk about some of those really cool interventions we've done. Amy, do we have any idea of you know, what the impact this layoff may have, you know, an understanding. So no surgeries for two months, what that's going to look like in a community six months, a year down the road. We don't, we don't know. Um, I will say that Clinic HQ, which is the spay neuter software, did just some basic analysis on where, what was in their system from the different clinics in terms of either what was scheduled or what people had put on hold. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be a backlog of about 250,000 surgeries. I know that there are some shelters that have a backlog. One of them I know has a backlog of over 800 surgeries to get done that are in foster in their shelter. So it is definitely, there is a backlog. What I'm hoping is because, you know, I don't want to take the, 
the dire look that this is going to set us back so far. I really, I really want to look at, look, we've come so far with spay neuter. We've done so much. It has helped make such an impact on intake and on helping reduce the burden on, on shelters and doing TNR programs. I really want to look at because everybody's going to focus in really hard and try to get these numbers done and do some additional spay days that I hope we're going to be able to get caught back up. And then I hope we're going to be able to get back even better to where we are, but there, it's definitely going to be hard in the, in the beginning. I think we're going to see lots of kittens and that's where it's going to be really important. Things like kitten lady and really talking about what to do if you find kittens and providing support for some of those neonates and the young kittens and where we're going to be doing return to field programs in the shelters. All of these things need to come in combined. We can't just do one piece of them. So if we're doing a big comprehensive program, I'm really hope I'm trying to be optimistic that we're going to be able to to get back to where we were and get caught up. You, you mentioned the fundraising thing. I mean, Spainer is the least sexiest <laughs> thing to fundraise around, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, fundraising is is a concern for all of us. Again, you mentioned budgets. We've talked about it here on the podcast. How are we going to? Uh, I, I don't want it to sound like this. We're going to have a limited number of dollars. I mean, we always do, but it's going to be a smaller pot. If we had to make choices, and I understand your point of view, uh, how are we going to choose between some of these programs and the things that we need to do? Where does spay-neuter, do you think, fit? And, and you know, in, in terms of the conversation, where does it belong in that discussion of where dollars should go. So for me, spay neuter is a cornerstone of access to care. And it also is so important because it focuses on prevention. You know, you always hear that one story about how there's two guys and they're standing at the river and these kids keep, they're floating down the river. And so they, they jump in to save the kid. And then another one comes down and they jump in to save the kid and um, they're getting exhausted. And finally the one guy leaves and the other guy says, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to figure out why kids are being thrown in the river down there and who's throwing them in so I can stop it. And it's focusing on the root of the problem. It's getting to the, the how do we stop this from, the, from ever having to enter the shelters. And that's why I love spay-neuter because it's that preventative piece. So I think that's got to be at the, the base of every discussion is prevention. And so for me, spay-neuter figures into the whole access to care and the intervention piece, because if we can keep animals in homes which it's much easier to do when they are altered and behaviorally and healthy and not having medical needs like pyometras and dystocias and things that come from being unaltered. And we can keep them from ever entering the shelter. We're actually working on some really cool data and I can't wait to see it because they used to say that 90% of animals entering the shelter were unaltered. That was about 10 years ago we've heard that. So we're working right now to get some data to do to look at that and see if that's still true. Because if that many animals coming in are unaltered, that also really shows how important spay-neuter is. So I feel like if we can really focus on the prevention piece, get the animals fixed, make sure they're getting the medical care, the veterinary care, keeping them in homes, keeping them out of shelters, or keeping them in their home as a community cats fixed, that's that's really an important piece to focus on. We know there are enough homes. It's uh, it's a numbers game, right? Uh, we've often heard it's an overpopulation problem. It's not. We know how many people acquire a pet. We know how many animals are dying. This is a question of where do we put money? As you said, it's a preventative, right? Uh, but uh, it's not going to help an animal that's going to be killed in a shelter today. Mm -hmm. So where do we balance that? 
Well, I don't think it's an either or. I, I never like to have either ors. I always believe there's a solution for all. And I think it, it is just about being creative. And I believe it's really about partnerships. So for me, I love the one health model. And I think that we as an animal field have so often just talk to ourselves and very, very, very insular. And I think this has really showed us, this pandemic has showed us, and Julie Castle, our CEO, has really talked about this as kind of getting outside ourselves and getting into the community. And I think that if we get into the community and get individuals involved in their neighborhoods uh, and we start working with human social services and public health and we start working with them, we're going to find that not only are there new sources of funding, but there's new sources of people to help and there's new solutions we haven't thought of. And so just to give you an idea of one thing that we're working on right now is um, Kenny, our grassroots advocate, and Caitlin, their team, uh, we, I've started working with them and we're doing a pledge through the grassroots advocacy team. We're trying to get a thousand people to agree to pledge to fix the community cats in their neighborhood. And then once they pledge, we're walking them through the steps on how to do this. And part of it is even how to set up a neighborhood fund so that you can get this funded through your neighbor. So you, you figure out how many cats are in the neighborhood that need to be fixed. You can do some creative fundraisers and ask for donations. And then we're helping connect them with clinics and traps to be able to do this very simple grassroots approach that is not placing the burden on the shelter at all to have to compete for resources, but taking it to a local level. And I think if we start doing that, you know, along with some of these social services. So if we start working, I'm doing a really cool project right now in my, my community with my vet clinic, where we are actually working with the local human hospital, uh, chain here. They they are very, very big in our area. And they actually have done a program where they are dealing with people who have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression. And they have their social workers are working with them to help them get a pet because and they're actually doing a study because we know that having pets helps reduce anxiety um, and depression. So they're actually studying the people. The social workers are helping with the local humane society, get them a pet that's best for them, the right fit. They're checking in with them, making sure that they're doing well with the pet, making sure things going well. Our clinic is providing the veterinary care. And this program has been such a great collaboration between a humane society and between a vet clinic and between the human health care system and the social workers. And that's thinking outside the box. That's what's going to to me, be able to say that there's there's enough resources and enough ways to do this. Let's talk about telemedicine and telehealth. Uh, for those that maybe aren't uh, up to speed on this, can you explain what those things are and the differences between them? Yeah, this has been a hot topic and um, a lot of confusion around because of the different terms. So we really talk about telehealth being something, and Best Friends has a great app. It's called the Vet Access app. And what's nice about it is that we're really pushing this right now for uh, fosters, for shelters to use for their fosters. So if you don't have a veterinarian on staff or your veterinarian isn't available 24-7, then you can actually sign up for this for free. And you can have all of your fosters sign up individually. And especially since we're seeing so many new fosters come on who maybe have never done this before and are more worried or don't know what to look for they can actually have access to a veterinarian 24 seven. So there's actually 80 vets who participate in this. And they basically, so telehealth is where you don't really have the relationship. You've never seen the vet, they can be based anywhere. So that does mean that they cannot prescribe or diagnose since they have not seen your pet. So what they can do is triage. 
and they can tell you if your pet should go to a vet or can wait till the morning or if it's something that, that you can handle at home. So they're basically just helping confirm what you might need to do in terms of taking action. The next piece is telemedicine. And Best Friends is actually working with Pet Pro Connect, which is a telemedicine uh, platform that just came out. And they're offering this free to shelters. And so shelters can sign up for this. And if you have a veterinarian on staff who actually can talk to the fosters, you can actually go through this app online and you can actually video chat or text with the vet to show a picture of your foster or video of your foster and say, hey, this is why I'm worried. What should I do? And then the vet can say, you know what? Yeah, I think you do need to bring the foster back in or, hey, I'm going to order something for you online and I'm going to send it to you. So it's a really nice, you know, you can actually, you're chatting with your vet about your animal that they have seen already. So they are able to diagnose and prescribe. Now, each state is very different in what they allow. So Best Friends has been working with some other organizations to really map this out and see which state allows which and see where we've been able, we've actually been advocating to relax some standards during COVID to make it easier because we're seeing that on the human side that people have really relaxed the standards and made it much easier. So we're actually hoping the other piece of this we're working with is we worked with Covetris, which is an online pharmacy. They're offering a shelter portal so that shelters can sign up for free. Um, and then when they, the vet does prescribe something, they now can go into the shelter portal and then they can send the medications directly to the foster's home. So they never have to come into the shelter. So these three things together work really, really nicely. They're all free. They're all resources to help our shelters and fosters right now, as we're seeing unprecedented fosters. But we're also hoping that telemedicine is going to be something more of the future, not only for shelters and fosters to continue to use, but to serve underserved populations. Because there are areas like in Texas, there's 28 counties that don't even have a vet clinic. Wouldn't that be great to be able to have a service like this or for underserved rural areas where they don't have anybody to be able to just call and talk to a vet and get some information. So I think this is I think we're going to see some interesting things with this, too. And our legislative team's doing some great work of trying to help really move telemedicine forward. So, Amy, with telemedicine, I am looking forward to the day when I can have a vet walk me through doing a neuter in my own kitchen. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> this is why we just keep you on the podcast. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Why can't I try new things? Now, with telemedicine, you mentioned ownership. And to be clear, no one wants to put animals in harm's way. But should we be having the same expectation of ownership and relationship as a client when it comes to shelter pets as we would with our own private vet animal, meaning telemedicine for shelter pets might have a different set of boundaries, could prescribe certain medicines without having seen the animal in person. I think what's some of the concern with some of the, the veterinary uh, veterinarians are that it's so the, the VCPR, the veterinary client patient relationship. They're very concerned that if you waive that, that what's going to happen is that people can just start diagnosing and treating animals without ever having seen them and that that's going to be dangerous. So they really want doing, to make, doing a neuter in their own kitchen is what you're saying. Yeah. Something like that. They're thinking of the John Dunn's out there. <laughs> and uh, so they're, you know, they're very concerned about that, that it could really go into a, um, a very different area. And also then you've got, it is taking away from your relationship with your client. Cause now you can go see somebody across the country 
So I think they really want to make sure to preserve that. And I don't think that's wrong, but I do think that there are ways to allow it um, that can be done safely and actually can be great for your individual practice. So for instance, my practice has started using it now. And I know that there's some spay neuter clinics who are using it. And it's great for like a recheck now, especially with physical distancing, you don't have to bring somebody back into the clinic or if it's something basic, like they've got a chronic issue or like diabetes and you're just looking at them on weight, or you just want to see how they're doing, or you want to look at a skin issue over a video. So there's some real simple things that can be used for, but I'm really thinking for me, where I think the biggest impact is for sure in shelters. Um, but I also think it is for those underserved communities, people without transportation, people where there's not a vet, where it's very rural. Um, I think that's, you know, where we're people who just are, are socially isolated, who can't get out physically. That's where I think that this can make a huge impact and where we really need to be looking at it. Um, and again, our team has done a really great job of being able to get some of these um, regulations relaxed, but then also forming some conversations with different um, organizations to see how we can work through any concerns. There's a, an effort underway. Uh, I believe it's called Spay Together, Best Friends and other organizations. Can you talk about that, what that is? Yeah. So for me, one of the biggest things when this was all, when Spay Neuter was shut down was to be thinking about, I like to problem solve. So what can, what can we do? How, what are we going to do when things reopen to focus on that? And so started really thinking about how there was going to be this backlog, how everybody was going to be very stressed, how clinics were going to be financially drained. And so I started brainstorming with some, some other people in the field. And I'm really excited because we've come up with this really, I think, unprecedented collaboration. We've got about 20 different groups participating. So it's Best Friends, it's HSUS, it's the ASPCA, it's Maddie's Fund, it's Pet Smart Charities, it's Petco, it's Greater Good. We've got just a huge list of, of groups that are participating and Animal Balance. So we've got some national groups and then we've got funders and then we've got people giving in kind. Um, and what's really cool, HSVMA, we're trying to get the AVMA, is that all these groups came together and said, we need to do something. And so what we ended up doing is saying, let's call it Spay Together and we're going to try and fix 50,000 pets. You might say 50,000 pets, what's that going to do? We're really kind of looking at this as like a, a stimulus package in a sense of just how can we help clinics? And so we're offering a couple of things within this. One is there are going to be surgical subsidies that are going to be available for people to apply for grants. And then two, there's going to be in certain states, there's going to be an opportunity to apply to have surgical teams come in and help if you do not have the capacity to get caught up yourself. And then three, there's going to be some in-kind donations where people are actually able to apply to get um, microchips and vaccines and discounts on supplies. So, and then fourth, there's going to be some training where people can apply if they want to grow their program. Maybe they need help looking at their budget because it's been blown to pieces through this and they want some help figuring out how to get back on track financially. So there's going to be these four components and it's going to be a three month push coming up hopefully in June. And we'll be able to you know, just really try to, to help bring things together and create a big push and, and get some animals fixed and try to help people get back. You said this is going to be kicking off in June. 
When do we expect to have this announced officially? Yeah, we're very excited. So we're hoping around the end of May, we'll be announcing all the organizations that are participating and we'll be announcing how how the program will work. So details are still being worked out. So we're not ready to announce all of that yet, but I think we're ready to announce that we're hoping that this is going to be really exciting. And just it's a great thing that all these groups came together to do this. Let's spay together. <laughs> Ooh, and you came up with our theme song. I like it. You're going to need to develop that out. Yeah, I do like singing karaoke, so you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Amy, thank you so much. Uh, there's so much potential to really change things and interesting to see so much happen in the middle of all this chaos. Uh, I know you're busy, but again, I appreciate the time and uh, you know the next few weeks and months we do have a long way to go. Well, thank you. Because yeah, I don't want to make this Pollyanna that it does sound like everything's like, we've got this. It's great. I mean, it's tough. This has sucked. This has not been an easy time. It has been very frustrating. We've all shed tears. We've all been so stressed about what it has done. But I really do believe that there is a lot of silver linings coming out of it. And I think that we have to bright spots. That's what I like to call them. We've got to focus on the bright spots. We've got to focus on here's where we're at now. What can we do with our new normal? And I think we're doing that. So I'm going to look forward to you giving us, I, I, you need to develop out that theme song. We're going to make that our theme song for Stay Together. Don't encourage me. <laughs> Everybody should know better than that. <laughs> True. Thank you to Denise, Chris, and Bonnie, and to Amy St. Arnaud. And thank you to the producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. Check out the website. We've pulled together tons of great resources on this topic. Bestfriends.org slash podcast. Please take care of yourselves, each other, and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.